Okay, we're going to be in Jonah 3. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. In it, he painted a picture of God furiously dangling the wicked over a pit by saying this, The God that holds you over the pit of hell, much as one holds a spider or some loathsome insect over the fire, abhors you and is dreadfully provoked. His wrath towards you burns like fire. He looks upon you as worthy of nothing else but to be cast into the fire. You are 10,000 times so abominable in his eyes as the most hateful and venomous serpent is in ours. His sermon was full of this kind of language and imagery, leading to a call for each person to repent of their wickedness and begged for God's mercy. After preaching this message to his own church, he was then invited to speak at a church in Enfield, Connecticut. And this is generally acknowledged as sort of the beginning of what was known as the Great Awakening, which was a widespread revival that swept the American colonies at the time. The impact cannot be overstated. Not only were people encouraged to repent and have uh, some sort of a personal connection with God rather than simply relying on a priest or a pastor, but it also led to the establishment of universities and seminaries and missionary societies. But back to that sermon and that quote. People repented and churches filled. People's lives were changed. In other words, it worked. It achieved its goal. Maybe. Now ever since that time, this sermon in particular, and this style of preaching in general, have shaped the American vision of God. We have collectively been afraid of this perpetually angry God and worried about how best to appease Him. There have been other well-known revivals that followed this same prescription. And the second Great Awakening in the early 1800s, the Great Prayer Meeting Revival of 1857, the urban revivals of the 1870s and 1880s led by D.L. Moody, and the revivals of the early 1900s led by Billy Sunday. And I could go on because there are plenty of others including the impact of people like Bill Bright, Billy Graham, and Chuck Smith. A massive number of people who repented as a result of their preaching ministries. All that to say that fear is an effective motivator, and with good reason. After all, in Proverbs 9.10, we read that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
we have to remember that it's just the beginning. It's not the rest. Wisdom grows and changes and matures over time. And we must grow and change and mature along with it. To the point that fear is no longer what motivates us, motivated by love. It's true that in our day and time, many don't fear the Lord. And many more don't even believe God exists. There are also a large number of people who certainly claim to believe in God, but have little, if anything, to do with the church. A great number within the church may very well profess Jesus as their Lord, but their lives don't look anything like His. It could be that they fear the Lord, but they don't really know the Lord. As we have continued our study in the book of Jonah, I've thought of a great deal about all of this and about what revival has looked like in the past and about what it might look like in our town. And there's a simple way to think about this where the gospel is preached and people repent and turn to Jesus. And I pray for this consistently. But as I think about what the good news looked like in the books of the New Testament as disciples of Jesus took seriously the idea of living like Him, I have to pause because that's a very different thing than walking down this aisle and getting dunked. Anyone can come forward out of fear and try to appease God by going through the motions as many obviously did during these great revivals, but what does a truly changed heart look like? Well, that will be our main question as we dig into the scriptures this morning. So follow along with me if you will. We're going to begin in Jonah 3 verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. People of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published throughout Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. And God bless the reading of his word. <clears throat> so 
So as we begin chapter 3, we see that God spoke to Jonah again. And it would be easy to talk about God giving second chances here because that's certainly one layer of the story. But at another layer, we have to wonder, why was God so determined to use Jonah to speak to Nineveh? If, if he ran away and tried to hide and get out of it, why didn't God just choose another prophet or uh, show Jonah uh, mercy separately? If God has a purpose for the things that happened, what was the purpose for using Jonah exclusively in this role? Was God merely teaching Jonah a lesson? Or on another layer, was Jonah actually representative, in a, in a way, of all Israel? God consistently worked this way throughout Scripture, choosing to work through one person for the sake of all the Israelites. Sometimes it was a king like David or Solomon. Sometimes it was a prophet like Samuel or Elijah. In this case, it seems as if Jonah had been chosen to represent Israel as a whole, which means that in a way, when the Lord showed Jonah mercy and grace, he was also showing Israel mercy and grace. The whole point of this story may very well have been for Israel to recognize and grasp the mercy and grace they were being given. That they were ultimately no different from their enemies. That they were just as broken and just as fallen and just as in need of God's mercy and grace. This is true for us too, for us as individuals, for our church, for our town, for our state, for the church in America, for our country itself, but for some reason we don't tend to see things this way. We tend to view our personal enemies as wicked and evil and deserving of being punished by an angry God while we deserve God's love. We label certain people and certain views enemies of the church, and we view them as wicked and evil and deserving of being punished by an angry God while we deserve forgiveness for our little indiscretions. We mix up the church with the government, and label certain people and views as our enemies both within and outside of our borders, we judge them as wicked and evil, deserving of an angry God's wrath, while we deserve an outpouring of blessings for being a Christian nation. We're so deceived and deluded that a vast majority of people who proclaim to be Christians go right along with this way of thinking and acting because we have bought the lie and let it burrow deep into our understanding of who God is and who we are. And ultimately, what we have come to terms with is the reality that an angry God gives way to an angry people. If that's who we think God is, a God who abhors the wicked with a burning wrath, we are the forgiven, placing us on the other side of God's burning wrath and making us the good guys. 
then we may as well abhor those who remain on the side of wickedness as well. If that's truly what God does, then we should follow suit. But is that who God is? Is that what God does? Is that what we see in Jesus? In Colossians 1.15, we read that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in Hebrews 1.3, we read that he is the radiance and glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And if Jesus is the image of God and the exact imprint of his nature, then we can safely understand who God is by looking at Jesus. <clears throat> what we find in the life and teachings of Jesus is so vastly different than this angry, wrathful God business. Now, I'm not saying God never gets angry. I'm not saying God has no wrath. I'm saying we have completely misunderstood the Lord if we think these things define Him and then are meant to define us. Fortunately, after all he'd been through, and in spite of how the Lord showed him mercy and provided for him, Jonah still didn't get it. But this time when the Lord said, Arise and go to Nineveh, Jonah went. <clears throat> At some point to this, as a sign of his repentance while in the fish with the prayer. But if we keep reading, that notion sort of gets dismantled when we get to chapter 4. I don't want to get ahead of myself. What's clear in these verses is that Jonah did in fact go to Nineveh this time. Maybe he was tired of running and hiding due to the way that turned out for him before. Maybe he was hoping to see the catastrophic destruction of the Assyrian capital. Maybe he was resigned to his fate. We don't know for sure. Although the context of the story seems to give us some pretty straightforward clues. After all, he didn't want to go at first. And even after he went, he wasn't happy about how it all unfolded. What we know for sure is that the message he gave them when he went, we know what that was. We find it at the end of verse 4. Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Which is interesting because of the word that is used at the end of that statement. In Hebrew, the word is hofok, and it means to turn or overturn. It can mean to be overthrown, as in a city or nation that is conquered by another. It can also mean to be changed, to turn from one thing into another to become something it wasn't before. And this is fascinating because within this one word, we may have an insight into the, into the dramatic difference between Jonah and God in this story. And I say this because Jonah was clearly preaching the message as Nineveh will be conquered and destroyed. But it seems as if God intended the alternative that Nineveh could be changed, turned from one thing to another, to 
become something different than what it was before. And look at their collective reaction to the message. We see it in verse 5. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Now throughout the ancient Middle East, fasting and wearing sackcloth was an outward sign of inward mourning and humility and repentance. It was employed for death as well as repentance as a sign of grief and sorrow, of mourning the way things had been and the imminent loss it had all caused. In other words, the way they had chosen to live as people, as a nation, it had all led directly to this inevitable end, and they were grieving their actions. And this was just the people, mind you, but it was all of them. When was the last time we saw anything like this? A massive repentance that ran through every type of group. I was thinking about it, and the closest thing I think we can uh, come to was what we saw maybe after 9-11, sort of that time period. But even at that, I don't think we can really call that a massive repentance because in the wake of that national tragedy that we had here, the data shows that the increase in church attendance only rose about 6% and only lasted just over a month. By November of 2001, things seemed to have returned to normal. So if that counts, it was very short-lived. And to be fair, <clears throat> we don't know precisely how long none of this repentance lasted either. We do know that it was only about 50 years after this that they invaded and conquered Israel. We know that it changed them to some extent right then and there. They mourned their actions. They grieved the way they had been living and it spread throughout the whole city all the way to the king and the nobles. The king took things a step further by sitting in ashes, which was yet another sign of mourning and grief. And in the process, he sent out a decree that every person and every animal should take part in the fast and sackcloth ritual. He wanted them to do it collectively as a people. And his reasoning is where the story takes its biggest turn. He wanted Nineveh as a whole to call out to God to repent from their evil, specifically their violence. And his reasoning is that God may turn and relent. That God may turn from his fierce anger and show them mercy by not destroying them. The question here is, why would he think God would relent and show mercy? How did he ever arrive at that notion? Maybe he was just being overly hopeful. Maybe it was a simple belief that any angry God can be appeased, and that Jonah's God was no different than any other angry God. We'll do that. Or it could be that as a king, he was well-educated and familiar with the teachings of the Hebrews about their God, seeing the Lord's tendency to be merciful with those who were repentant. He may even have read some of the stories and seen how God was merciful to Israel and thought to himself, in this situation, maybe God will extend that mercy to us. 
Whatever it was that made the king think this, he was miles ahead of Jonah. Jonah may have known the Lord was merciful, but he didn't want him to be. Here's the thing. The people of Nineveh had to believe mercy was an option to go through what they went through during the time they were fasting in sackcloth. As they inhabited the space between Jonah's pronouncement and their impending doom, they fasted, they prayed, they covered themselves in ashes, they repented of the way they had been living and the violence they had all been a part of. And this is where we find out who God really is. In verse 10, we read that when the Lord saw all this, when he saw their fasting and sackcloth and ashes, when he heard their prayers, because God hears everyone's prayers. When the Lord saw all this, he relented. Some versions of the Bible may even say he repented. And the word in the Hebrew there is the same word used when describing what the Ninevites were doing. It's Nahum. And it means to be sorry or to console oneself. Literally, it means to sigh. As in, like a big, deep sigh of relief. Have you ever had the weight of something terribly stressful lifted from your shoulders and you just breathe this big, deep sigh of relief? It means something along those lines. In other words, God sighed. The Lord let out a big sigh of relief. How many of us ever thought about the Lord in this way? It's definitely not the picture of God that I was given when I was growing up. The God I was introduced to was a generally angry and ready to strike me down if I did anything wrong type of God. And this God was willing to forgive me if I repented, but would still be watching me like a hawk for whenever I messed up again. In other words, I grew up as a sinner in the hands of an angry God, understanding my whole existence in this world as being abhorred by God and dangled over hell. I never saw God as being relieved by my repentance or confession. And yet that's what we see here. And ultimately, that's what we consistently see in Jesus as he forgave those who had been told over and over that they were abominable in God's eyes. Those who had been assured that they were worthy of nothing else but being cast into the fire. You would think if anyone was abominable in God's eyes and worthy of being cast into the fire. It would be the enemies of his people, the nations that worshipped false gods and idols, the people who sacrificed their own children and wanted to destroy Israel and do the same with Israel's children. And yet, here we find the Lord breathing a sigh of relief that Nineveh repented and chose life. Maybe falling into the hands of God isn't as horrid a thing as Jonathan Edwards made it out to be. Maybe God's defining character trait isn't anger 
or violence. Maybe God doesn't abhor us and think of us as abominations. Maybe, maybe it's a good thing to find yourself in the hands of God. In 2 Samuel 24, King David took a census and then realized that what he had done was foolish and sinful. And when confronted by the prophet of God, David had an interesting response. It's in verse 14 where he said, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. David seemed to understand that for a broken and fallen sinner, the hands of God were the best possible place to be. That God's mercy was abundant. That the Lord's mercy was in fact his defining character trait. And this is still true. As we sit here this morning listening to you and thinking about the story of Jonah, the defining characteristic of God is still mercy. If we doubt this, we can always turn to 1 Peter 1.3 where it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. What an angry, unmerciful God who abhors us and sees us as abominations worthy of nothing other than being dangled over a fiery hell. Would such a God send His only begotten Son for us? Would that God eradicate the wall of separation between us and offer us the hope of resurrection and everlasting life? Would such a God make it possible for us to confidently draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, as Hebrews 4.16 reassures us? What if at least part of the reason for Jonah going to Nineveh was to rid him of this idea of an angry, violent God who hated his enemies? What if another layer of meaning was to do the same for Israel? To begin dispelling their concepts of an angry, violent God so that when the Messiah showed up and started talking about loving our enemies, they might recognize him when he said things like what we find in Matthew eleven twenty nine, 29, where Jesus said, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. What if the layers of the story of Jonah are also meant to diffuse the angry, violent God, images of God that we hold on to, even today. To open our eyes to the God we see in Jesus, the God who is gentle, the God whose mercy is abundant, the God whose hands are the safest place we could ever hope to be, 
What if at least part of the purpose of the story of Jonah is to get us to reevaluate our understanding of who God is so that we might reevaluate who we are meant to be in this world? Because if God's defining character trait is mercy, shouldn't that be our defining character trait as well? And is that who we are? Is that how people see us? When people think of Marathon Baptist Church, is mercy the first thing that comes to mind? If it's not, we need to take notice. We need to recognize where we have gotten off track and repent and allow the Holy Spirit to redirect us. So that we might develop a heart that leans in to the mercy of God and encourages others to do the same. Where Jonah failed, may we succeed. May what began in fear end in mercy. And may we see true revival in our lives and in our town. There's a pastor and author by the name Brian Zahn. He wrote a book as a sort of response to Jonathan Edwards' sermon. It's called Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God. And in the book, he borrows from the parable of the prodigal to make his ultimate point. And I'll close with this quote from that part of the book. Zahn writes, When the prodigal son fell fearfully into the hands of his father, forgiveness healing and restoration began. Just because the prodigal son felt fear as he fell into his father's hands doesn't mean he had anything to fear from his father. In his father's hands was the only safe place to be. It was in the far country that the prodigal son was in danger, not in his father's hands. When we fall into the hands of the living God, we are sinners in the hands of a loving God. Will you pray with me?